everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening, and we're excited to have Dr. Phil Klotz back joining us once again from Colorado State University. You know what that means. When Phil's here, it means we're going to be talking about hurricanes, and we know the uh, tropical Atlantic season is about to start. June the 1st is the official uh tropical start of, of meteorology though we are already seeing those forecasts distributed by the hurricane center on may 15th so uh, we are in that time of the year and so we thought we'd have our annual visit with phil and kind of look at uh, what he's expecting this year for the uh, tropical atlantic basin and uh, what we all can be prepared for here in the carolinas and along the east coast and the gulf of mexico so phil welcome back to the show we're happy to have you uh, how's things been for you since uh, we saw you last year yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be back. Oh, man, it was another busy hurricane season last year. Um, another another year blowing through the whole alphabet. And um, obviously, Hurricane Ida, by far the biggest uh, story of the year. Um, and now, obviously, we're, uh, we're, we're rapidly approaching the start of the 2022 hurricane season. We've already been kind of eyeing something in the Western Caribbean. Looks like that probably not going to pan out. But you know, it's um, it's uh, getting towards that time of year where the uh, eyes turn towards the tropics, and uh, looks like we have a you know potentially a pretty healthy hurricane season um, in store for 2022. Uh, you guys always release a seasonal outlook along with a few other folks. So uh, kind of let's dive into that and and kind of see uh, what you're anticipating this year for the uh, the Atlantic uh, tropical season. Yeah, so we put out our first forecast in early April, and at that point we called for a total of 19 named storms. Of those 19, nine becoming hurricanes, and of those nine, four becoming major category three, four, five hurricanes. That is an above average season. The average season has about 14 storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. Um, so overall, I'd say it's a, a, characterized maybe like a somewhat above average hurricane season. Uh, we will be updating our forecast on June the 2nd. Um, we haven't kind of finalized it yet, but I'd say at this point, you know, the odds of it going down are, are very low. I think if anything, they might be actually going up a little bit, just given the overall climate, tropical atmosphere, or tropical atmospheric and oceanic climate has shifted in such a way that it looks to be more conducive for another busy Atlantic hurricane season. We've actually had six above normal Atlantic hurricane seasons in a row. Um, so if the forecast is correct and we get, that would be seven, which would be the uh, seven that we've already, we already have the record of most above average seasons in a row. Um, and that would just add to the record if the forecast is right. Yeah, Phil, um, you, know, you mentioned the Western Caribbean. I know the GFS was trying to snip at a couple of, of, of hot topics there. Um, and it's always just takes a little bit of patience, perseverance to see what the solutions are providing, especially when you have split uh, where the Euro is not showing anything GFS. And so we've seen the last couple of years, GFS has, has been outperforming the Euro a little bit. So I really wanted to talk a little bit about um, that, uh, maybe um, get to that a little bit later in the show as far as modeling goes. But I really wanted to kind of focus on how you came up with your numbers for this year and that's going on La Nina, right? So that's based on La Nina summer. And do we expect that to last all summer? What are the implications of, of uh, that according to your forecast? Yeah. And so when we put out the first forecast in April, in early April, you know, I'd say at that point we were, um, the odds of La Nina neutral were, were about even up. We thought El Nino was low. And I would still say there, the odds since that point, I think have shifted more towards La Nina, but there's still, Likely in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get some potentially a fairly, at least moderate, significantly west low-level winds out of the west in the tropical Pacific, and that usually generates some warming. We'll see exactly how much, but I think likely we're currently actually have a moderate lining. It's actually really robust right now, um, especially for this time of year. Um, so we don't, I wouldn't necessarily say we expect a moderate lining for the peak of the season, but even if we're kind of on the borderline between 
weak La Nina and cool neutral, um, cooler than normal water, but not quite up to the threshold in the Eastern and Central Tropical Pacific. Um, as long as basically if you have that combined with a with a fairly warm tropical Atlantic, that's likely to lead to um to a busy season. With La Nina, though, it is interesting. So the threshold of La Nina is half a degree Celsius colder than normal, which seems really small. It's only like a degree Fahrenheit, but very small temperature changes. Obviously, Colorado, you know, you get huge temperature changes. We're supposed to be 90 degrees tomorrow and then snow on the weekend. But in the tropics, one, two degrees Fahrenheit changes can make big differences in how the atmosphere then responds. And that's why we care for hurricanes in the Atlantic. Obviously, we're not forecasting hurricanes in the Pacific. But when you have an El Nino, it tends to basically increase winds high up in the atmosphere at 20, 30,000 feet that tear apart hurricanes in the Caribbean, especially, but extending out into the tropical Atlantic. This year, we think odds of El Nino are very low. Uh, NOAA just put out their updated, you know, probabilistic outlook for El Nino, and they only gave a 4% chance uh, for August through October. So, so quite low. So we think probably best bet is borderline cool neutral to weak La Nina for the peak of the season. That'd be my best guess at this point. Yeah, using the Walker circulation all the way across the equatorial into the Atlantic. Uh, we talked about how the La Nina affects spillover into the Atlantic. So you, you touched on it a bit ago, but what does that mean overall? Are we talking less shear, warmer sea surface temperatures, or is it just a calmer environment for storms to breathe a little bit better? Yeah, so La Nina really, the, the biggest issue with La Nina is it tends to be um, lower, lower, lower levels of vertical wind shear. And vertical wind shear, if you look at any, any, any of the National Hurricane Center forecast discussions for any storm, I, I suspect 99.9% .9 of the time or more, they're going to mention vertical wind shear. That's a huge factor because too much of that shear tears apart hurricanes. If you have a low shear environment combined with warm water and enough moisture and you have a system, then you can see these storms intensifying and even rapidly intensifying. Also with La Nina, it does tend to basically the surface water temperatures in the Atlantic may not change much, but it tends to make for cooler temperatures high up in the atmosphere. Um, and so that tends to basically make the atmosphere a little bit more unstable. Um, and that helps to promote thunderstorms that are the basically the building blocks of the hurricanes. Even El Nino, we like to have that discussion too, so that the audience can understand all the facets and why we pick a more active hurricane season than not. Yeah. And so, you know, just because you have a La Nina doesn't guarantee you're going to have a busy season. Um, you, it depends on what the tropical Atlantic looks like as well. So that's so in early April, when we put out our first forecast, the waters in the deep tropics were a little bit cooler than normal, but farther north in the mid-latitudes, they were warmer than normal. And obviously during the peak of the season, we really care what's going on in the tropical Atlantic because that's where the hurricanes are. But before the season and even in the early part of the season, we do care what's going on in the subtropical Atlantic and even farther north up towards England. Um, because basically when the waters there are warm, um, early in the season and prior, just prior to the season, that tends to cause the subtropical high pressure to be weaker. And when that subtropical high pressure system is weaker, basically the trade winds that blow across the tropical Atlantic from east to west are also weaker. And the weaker winds mean less churning up of the ocean surface, which leads to basically warming faster than normal. Obviously the tropical North Atlantic warms up every year from winter to summer, but this year it's been warming up faster than normal. So we went from a little bit colder than normal to a little bit warmer than normal. And given there's still a lot of warmth in the subtropical Eastern Atlantic, we anticipate likely we're going to continue to see that anomalous warming. And if we look at outlooks from various climate models as well, those climate models, um, say from like the European Center, from the UK Met Office, from the Japan Meteorological Agency, they've generally shifted to a warmer forecast for the tropical and North Atlantic, which again is another sign typically of an, an above normal hurricane season. 
what are some other things uh, that are important to your forecast? There's a variety of different tools that we use to come up with our seasonal forecast. So with our forecast, you know, you hear the numbers and there's a lot that goes into it. So there's like a 40 page document that goes out with each of these forecasts. And so we have a variety of different techniques that we use. So we have a statistical model, which looks at basically which regions worked well at forecasting past hurricane seasons. And so for our June forecast that's coming out, we look at conditions during April and May and say, okay, which regions in April and May worked well at forecasting um, hurricane seasons. And so for our statistical model, we use basically um, water temperatures in the Western Pacific, when those are warmer than normal, that tends to be associated with La Nina. We also look at the strength of the winds blowing across the tropical Pacific. When those are stronger out of the east, that tends to keep the waters cool, promoting La Nina and reducing the odds of El Nino. In the Atlantic, we look at both water temperatures, um, actually more in the subtropical Atlantic during this early time, because again, it's then how it forces the subtropical high. And then we also actually look at this overall strength of that subtropical high. Those are our four predictors. Um, in our statistical model. And then we also use basically what's known as a statistical dynamical or hybrid model. And the way that these work is we um, actually forecast, we look at what climate models are forecasting for the month of July. Um, and basically we take the historical relate. So basically we are taking, so we have a statistical model that goes out the 1st of August with our August forecast. And obviously I would love to have know what July is gonna look like now, but obviously we don't, but we can use a climate model to forecast July. And those models actually have, I thought surprisingly good skill. And the way we can tell is because when you when these climate models are developed, they, they are built on historical data because we wanna be able to see how good are they. You know, we wanna make sure that they actually work. Um, so we can look and see historically how good those models have been. Um, and so we can basically say, assuming those models forecasts for July are correct, here's how much basically accumulated cycle and energy, which is an integrated hurricane metric, how much of that we can expect for the season. And then we also finally also use analogs, which involves going back into the past and looking for years in the past that had conditions most similar to what we currently see and what we anticipate for the upcoming hurricane season. And basically we have analogs that we've, we've selected, but just because those are analogs say, like, that I would select, if you were to ask other hurricane scientists, they may give slightly different analogs because obviously no two years are exactly alike. But one thing I did think was interesting is that if we look at analogs for this year, a pretty good analog for this year is actually last year, which is unusual. Normally the best analog for the current year is not what just happened the previous year, but this year it's not that different from what we saw last year at this time. So for the audience out there, we, we generally have four different kinds of models. We have um, statistical, probabilistic, deterministic, and uh, dynamic modeling, right? And those are, the, those are the four main ones that we have. And, and like Phil said, there's analogs, there's all kinds of historicals and, and archives and things that, that are banked on that. But, you know, two of the main players that you may see out there, and, and you'll see people posting things like, uh, you know, doomsday hurricanes hitting the coast after 240 hours, just all kinds of crazy stuff. But GFS is one of the main ones, and the Euro, of course, is the other one. So those are the two main ones that you hear about a lot in media. So, Phil, I'm going to bring you in on this. You know, we know GFS and Euro. GFS has been outperforming. Um, which models do you find for medium resolution, medium to high or low resolution models, um, and, and further out in longevity? Which ones do you find a little bit more helpful? I mean, I know once we get out past five to seven days, we start to get a high margin of error, but... Uh, which ones have you seen performing a little bit better than others as far as tropical cyclone development? Yeah, and, and one, one of the key things is that these models will often be tweaked every year. So just because a model did great last year doesn't mean it's going to be the best performing model for the coming year. And so 
Um, first of all, I'll just talk about like our climate models that we use for forecasting seasons in advance. We find the best ones. So I use three. I use the, EC, the European Center, or the ECMWF model. I use the forecast from the UK Met Office, as well as the JMA, the Japan Meteorological Agency. Um, that they actually work better. The uh, climate forecast system is old and really, really, really desperately needs an upgrade because it's um. And I know they're they're actually like overhauling the model. Actually, actually going to have a new model um in a few years. Um, but when it comes to like individual forecasts, um, I do a lot with Genesis because with in addition to our seasonal forecast, we do sub seasonal predictions. So trying to predict how busy the next couple of weeks are going to be once we get into the hurricane season. And so for Genesis. I will look at, so you have basically what you mentioned, you have these kind of deterministic models, which are run at really high resolution, but that only gives you one answer. So basically the model is either going to develop the storm or not develop the storm, but then you could also run additional, um, what they'll run effectively what they call ensembles, which will be at a lower resolution, but they'll say run 50 of them. And so then you can get kind of a more of a probabilistic idea of, you know, okay, you know, 10 of the 50 models are developing a storm, 30 of the 50 models are developing a storm. It gives you a better idea as kind of confidence. And so I certainly look at both the European ensemble and the GFS ensemble when it comes to Genesis. There's also um, an ensemble you can get from the UK Met Office. So, you know, I think, and obviously with the Hurricane Center, I'm sure they look at all those and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. I mean, it's also important to look at kind of the large scale environment these storms are moving into. For example, with the system that we were looking at earlier, the European center generally had higher shear in the Gulf of Mexico, which is one of the reasons why I was ever very keen on it. Um, but if you look at the ensemble members, the European did have a few that were trying to develop something. Um, and again, forecasting Genesis is a really hard problem. When it comes to track and intensity, um, I was just at the American Meteorological Society um, Hurricanes and Tropical Meteorology Conference, and it was great to see people in person. Um, and, you know, it's been four years since we met in person there, and I think it was just, it was eye-opening to see that, you know, the, the, ad, the adage for the longest time was track forecasts are getting better and pretty much getting better and better every year, but the intensity forecasts really weren't. In the last five, ten years, you're actually seeing market improvements in intensity prediction, and a lot of that is due to better modeling, um, better, better, we're getting better. Um, there's some nice, better statistical tools, but also the dynamical models, especially like HWARF has been quite good at actually, it's not, it used to be kind of like for entertainment purposes only, but it's actually gotten quite a bit better. Um, and so there, at the Hurricane Center has more skillful guidance. They can start to be more aggressive at forecasting rapid intensification, which we've seen, um, you know, even with like Hurricane Ida, right out of the box, right out of the bat, like the first advisory when it was a tropical depression, they went to 95 knots, which is, you know, as um, I think it was looks looks I forget who someone at the Hurricane Center was saying like they used to never do that like to go that aggressive out of the box, but now they have better guidance so they can have more confidence in going for these aggressive forecasts. Um, and so I think you know as the dynamical models continue to improve, um, the Hurricane Center certainly the forecasters can add additional insights beyond the models because they can observe all the forecasts and kind of look at the large scale as well. And so they have a little bit better skill than any of the individual models. But I think, you know, if, as you give them better tools, the forecasts, the intensity forecasts will continue to improve. And also we'll still probably continue to see at least incremental improvements in track prediction as well. You, you mentioned uh, rapid intensification, and that, that's something we've seen over the last uh, three or four years with these landfall and tropical systems. They kind of ramp up before they uh, make landfall. And it's something that, uh, Shay, I, I think you uh, have been talking about the, uh, the brown water ocean effect. Uh, what, what, it, what is your idea or your input on that, Phil? Why do you think we're seeing that so often, so much uh, here recently? Yeah, well, we certainly have seen a lot of that. And I think really, you know, rapid intensification, 
you know, if it happens in the ocean is or far away from land, it's it, it's interesting, but it's not necessarily as as big of a deal as when it rapidly storms rapidly intensify, you know, in the day up to landfall. And that's what we've seen a lot of. Obviously, Hurricane Ida last year, 2020, it felt like pretty much every storm was rapidly intensifying right up to the point of landfall. Um, obviously, if you go back a little further, Hurricane Michael in 2018 rapidly intensifying pretty much up to the point of landfall. Um, and so when it comes to rapid intensification, I mean, there's a lot of different requirements that you have to have. You have to have obviously enough warm, you have to have warm water, low shear, plenty of moisture. Um, and so, you know, just warm water is not going to do it. You need these other factors as well, but they just kind of all have come together. Um, and so in the case of like Hurricane Ida, it was, you know, it made landfall in Cuba as a hurricane. The land, the, um, to, the interaction with topography kind of, it took a little while, what, and then it kind of basically hit like basically the, the loop current, so the warm eddy in the Gulf of Mexico, and then it basically like the bottom dropped out. And I think the pressure at one point felt like 11 millibars in an hour, some incredible, basically the bottom fell out of the storm. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we've observed the last couple of years is normally kind of the canonical thing was Northern Gulf of Mexico, hurricanes making landfall in the Northern Gulf of Mexico, or hurricanes making landfall in the Northern Gulf, um, once they move into the right before landfall, tend to weaken. That was kind of the, the old adage. Even like Katrina was weakening as it came on shore. And obviously, this past couple of years, we, that, that hasn't been the case. Um, and it's been, you know, the shelf water is a little warmer, but also, too, like in the case of Hurricane Ida, Ida, once it made landfall, even didn't weaken very quickly. It took a long time for the storm to weaken. And some of that, as you mentioned, the brown ocean effect. So with Hurricane Ida, um, um, right before it came on shore, they had gotten a lot of heavy rainfall in southern Louisiana. And obviously, southern Louisiana is also a lot of its swamp anyway, but even the area that wasn't swamp was saturated. So it's not the Gulf of Mexico, but it's not like going over a desert either. It still can get some extract some energy out of that. So when you have kind of saturated soil before a storm comes on shore, that can tend to help promote the I'll help allow the storm to, to, to weaken slower. Um, and also in the case of Ida, as it came on shore, it was slowing down. So even though the center had come on shore, a fair amount of the circulation was still over the Gulf. Um, and so actually um, um, a student that helped co-advise has actually written a paper um, to the Bolton AMS on Hurricane Ida and comparing it with other storms along the Gulf of Mexico or storms making landfall in the Northern Gulf um, and basically highlighting how Ida was, was pretty unique in that basically the way that it that basically how slowly it weakened after landfall. And I got lent. some of that definitely was the uh, the brown ocean effect in addition to the fact that it was slowing down as it was coming on shore. And obviously as we saw with Ida, you know, it was a great example of a storm where like obviously it caused a tremendous amount of damage in Louisiana, about 60 billion. But then a couple of days later, you know, most people had kind of forgotten about it. even admittedly, I wasn't paying as much attention. I saw it rain in the mid-Atlantic, you know, but then I was actually watching the uh, the US Open tennis in New York and I just thought, you know, it looked it was like apocalyptic rain. And my aunt's texting me from North Jersey saying, you know, there's, there's boats going down the street. And we obviously saw, you know, a tremendous amount of flooding and that was about $15 billion. And I think, I'm trying to remember the exact number of fatalities, but there were only six fatalities. I mean, six is still more than we want to see, but Louisiana had six fatalities from, a, from the Category 4 hurricane. But the Mid-Atlantic states, I think, had 55, 59, something like that um, in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. So again, highlighting that inland flooding is another big concern in addition to, obviously, the wind and the storm surge or, and the rain, obviously, that you get when the storm comes on shore. Which boat are you in? Do you think we should start the hurricane season a little bit earlier, you know, May 15th, or, or should we stick at June 1st, which, which is the official start? Do you have a preference there? Yeah, and so actually I'm, 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 not, I'm not lead author, but I'm a co-author on a paper that I think is hopefully just about accepted on this topic. Um, 
And so um, a colleague of mine, Ryan, who runs a weather tiger um, as, as, as lead author on this paper, and we we're looking at the hurricane season length. And so when the hurricane season was decided to be June 1st and November 30th, there wasn't like, basically there wasn't, there wasn't really like a quantitative guideline. It was basically like, well, that encompasses most of the storms, so we'll decide to be those days. And so what did in this paper was kind of try to like, actually like, let's actually come up with a quantifiable metric so that we can then see, you know, is that shifting forward? And so there's, so, I mean, I did kind of give a wishy-washy answer, but so first of all, I'd say the arguments against moving the hurricane season back is that we have not had a hurricane during the month of May since 1970. Um, so from that perspective, if you're talking hurricane season, you know, and also too, we on average have one hurricane by August 15th. So from a public engagement perspective, that's really hard because again, usually I can't tell how many emails I get and people say, oh, you know, it's a, it's a dud of a hurricane season. You know, it's, it's August 1st and we've had, you know, two storms and no hurricanes. It's a dud. And it's like, well, you have to wait. You know, the hurricane season doesn't really ramp up until mid-August and Bill Grace to ring a bell August 20th is signaling the busy part of the season. So it's a very peak season. Uh, counterpoint to that is we obviously have had storms prior to June 1st, I believe every year since 2015. Um, and so most of these storms are weak and short-lived and kind of pieces of junk, but we have had a couple of landfalls and these weak storms, even though they may have a lot of wind, can also bring heavy rainfall like we just talked about. And obviously we saw, I think, you know, an example is Hurricane Allison or Hurricane Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, early June, weak storm, brought a tremendous amount of rain to Houston area. And there's nothing that would say we couldn't have that a week earlier. And so if we had a tropical storm prior to June 1st that caused a lot of damage from flooding, you know, how would that be handled? I think that's that's a tricky part. But um, in addition to kind of being an interesting science question, there are a lot of financial decisions that are made and a lot of that are based on the June 1st start of the hurricane season. So if we did shift it back, various insurance contracts and things would also then shift back. And so there's there's more than just, you know, the kind of a geeky science ivory tower kind of discussion that needs to go on. So I know Noah right now has a um, kind of a panel going on to kind of discuss what to do. I mean, I would say my personal preference at this point would be keep it June 1st. I'm um, just given, it's a really, really hard to keep the public engaged if you have one hurricane in the first three months of the hurricane season. It's already hard if it's two and a half months. Um, but, you know, maybe just messaging that we, we, you know, you can get storms prior to the start, the official start of the season. Right now, Hurricane Center did start, I believe, last year doing tropical weather outlooks um, on May 15th, which I think is great. So basically, the, the Eastern Pacific hurricane season starts May 15th, and they start putting out tropical weather outlooks, which basically is they look and say, is there any area that we think is going to develop and become a tropical cyclone in the next five days? Um, and so basically, if nothing's there, they just, you know, say no storms, no storms expected. Otherwise, they will put out and say, you know, we have, you know, 20 percent chance in the next five days or whatever. And so um, formerly it had, was like a special tropical weather outlook, but now it's just done every six hours, which I think in a way is, is really nice because now it's just kind of remember just to go and check every six hours as opposed to, you know, kind of forgetting about it and then looking at some random time and seeing, oh, there's a tropical weather outlook, you know, a special tropical weather outlook. So I think kind of the way they're doing it now is good. Um, but I think, again, Noah has a panel. I'm not sure when the, the, the discussion is going to come out, but um, the decision is, is above my pay grade. But hopefully this paper that I'm a co-author on will come out and at least add some more kind of quantitative metrics of the hurricane season that we can at least be monitoring to see if, if the season is shifting earlier. We talked about the Caribbean earlier, um, where we saw in 2020 what a powerhouse that can be when that powder keg goes off, right? So all the way to the very end, even we got, we got 
two thirds of the way through the, the Greek alphabet that year with Nicaragua getting hit two times by massive storms. Uh, so if we talk about ACE, we talk about the Caribbean, um, do you feel like a majority of the ACE or the accumulated cyclone energy that, that you calculated for the year is going to come from that area in the Gulf of Mexico this year? Or do you think <laughs> the yeah. region will, will, will feed into that? Or, or what are your thoughts there? Yeah. And so 2020, you brought up, you brought up a great example. 2020 was a, a extremely busy year. And especially for the Caribbean, it was late. So normally October, October, November, the most major hurricanes we'd had formed during those two months was two prior to 2020. In 2020, we have five. Um, it was just bananas, crazy busy late. So we had a lot of storms prior to October 1st, but there were a lot of them were kind of, we had Laura um, and Teddy that were major hurricanes, but there was a whole lot of weak stuff. Whereas the late season storms were the really, like the, obviously Laura was a heavy hitter, but there were a lot of really heavy hitters. And especially the last Ada and Iota, two powerful category four hurricanes, making landfall in almost the exact same spot in Nicaragua. Um, and so 2020 was an interesting year because the environment was very conducive but it wasn't so conducive in the central Atlantic. So systems coming off Africa, some of them formed right off Africa and then kind of just recurved and went out into the ocean. Whereas a lot of other systems kind of dinked around, got to like near the islands where the conditions got more conducive. And then they just, once you get storms in the Caribbean, you know, they're gonna make landfall and cause and wreak havoc. And obviously as you move from east to west across the Atlantic, the waters get warmer. Um, so you just more fuel for the storms to develop. So. Usually, as you go further west, there's also kind of, especially once you get near the islands, there's, there's kind of, a, it's kind of a high risk, high reward because the waters are warmer, but there's also, you can get these kind of these mid-level or mid and upper level low pressure systems that will dig down and just cause a lot of shear and tear storms apart. And so 2020 and last year, we saw a decent number of those. And so the central Atlantic was fairly quiet in both of those years. Both of the seasons were kind of, you had storms in the west and you had storms in the east. It's really hard to say, you know, this early, what we're going to see in 2022. Typically, when you have a La Nina, it tends to reduce shear in the Caribbean. So you would expect a busier Caribbean. However, last year was a La Nina year, was a above normal season, but the Caribbean was really quiet. Um, we had Ida don't come out of that, but then late last year, we thought it was going to be maybe not a repeat of 2020, but a busy end of the season. And there was nothing in the Caribbean because we had a an upper level low kind of park off the East Coast after Sam recurved and it just sat there for four or six weeks and basically sheared everything apart. And so these relationships work great most of the time, but last year we got the seasonal forecast correct, but I would say the season didn't quite play out the way that we thought it did. So I would say certainly 2022, looking at um, the statistical model as well as what the climate models are forecasting, it looks like Africa should be favored um, for another vigorous easterly wave season. So I would say we certainly will expect to see some stuff in the main development region. And then it's kind of a wild card is, are we going to get kind of what they call a tropical upper tropospheric trough or basically low pressure at mid-level, mid and upper levels in the atmosphere digging down, causing a lot of shear in the central Atlantic. Cause we saw that, we didn't see that in 2017. And that's obviously we have a ton of storms basically cruising all the way across the basin. Whereas a year say like last year, that top was fairly healthy. And so we had stuff come off Africa, um, and develop and then recurve out in the ocean and then everything else kind of formed farther to the west. So we're going to a hurricane conference in Colorado and uh, 
what are some things you got to do when you come to visit Colorado and uh, and the area where you live? If you're in the Denver area, um, I mean, if it's in the summer, I definitely recommend going to Rockies game. They're really fun, and uh, Rockies tickets are really easy to get, and they're quite reasonable, so it won't blow your budget. Um, as Bill Gray used to always say, if you go to a baseball game, you got to get a hot dog. If you go to a baseball game and don't get a hot dog, you're a communist. That's what he used to say. So definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely got to get a. Uh, he had a lot of fun quotes. That's one of my favorite Bill Gray quotes. I am a huge um, fan of going to the mountains. So if you have time, um, there's so if you have time, um, there's um, like Pikes Peak, for example. You can hike Pikes Peak. The train up Pikes Peak is really cool. Um, the Cog Railway, of course, if you're going to do that, you got to book it really far in advance because the reservations go uh, go quickly. Also, um, you can also drive a car up Pikes Peak. Um, so there's various ways you can get up depending on uh, how motivated you are in terms of uh, wanting to walk 13 miles from the bottom to the top. Um, but they do have really good donuts on the top, but I'm not sure if it's because the donuts are really that good or if you're just really hungry after hiking 13 miles up a mountain. Um, and then uh, let's see what else in Denver. I mean, if you go this time of year, whitewater rafting is really fun. Um, so, um, that's, that, that could be a good time. So, um, and they have some really fun ropes courses and stuff. So yeah, there's, there's tons of good stuff to do. Um, but definitely I recommend, uh, if you're going to, uh, I, I'm a, Bill Gray was a huge baseball fan. I'm a huge baseball fan. So I definitely say, if you're going to do one thing, I recommend, uh, going, going to Coors Field and checking out a Rockies game. That's a show title right there. Don't be a commie. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Carrying on, uh, William Gray's legacy really well. Yeah. What is something that's that's sort of the claim to fame for Denver area cuisine and what's the best place to get it? I love Mexican food. And so there's a hole in the wall place called De Corazon, which is really, really good Mexican food. Um, and the, the menu is mostly in Spanish and it's across from the Rio, uh, which is kind of like the kitschy place where everyone goes, but you go across the street to De Corazon and everything's about half the price. And the, I don't drink margaritas, but apparently the margaritas are, are really good and they're about half the price as well. So that would be that would be the place that I recommend if you go to Denver. And it's only about a mile from Coors Field, so it's good. It's good pre-Rockies game food. If anybody wants to follow you, uh, how's the best way to do that on social media? Best way to follow me is I. So our website, we do all the seasonal forecasts. That's tropical.colostate.edu. Um, but the best way to follow, to keep in touch is through, a, I post a ton of content on Twitter during the season. And my Twitter handle is at Phil Klotzbach. Um, when I signed up for Twitter, it was to uh, complain to United Airlines and they responded better on Twitter than anywhere else. Um, but I wasn't really thinking I was going to be doing a lot, you know, getting into kind of what I ended up doing. So um, I didn't come up with a fun handle like, you know, count five fill or something like that. So <laughs> I just have Phil Pottsbach, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, be sure to follow Phil. Uh, June 2nd is when we'll see the next update out from Phil and his team there. So Phil, I know you got a pizza in the oven, so we'll let you get that's to right, that. That's right. That's right. We got, we got pizza in the oven, so I better go upstairs. I can smell hey. it. And thank you all for watching us here at the Carolina Weather Group. We'll see you here real soon.